celebrate that with me, church? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your unfailing love, Jesus. Yes. We feel your love, Lord. We lift our hands and surrender tonight, Lord, to receive that love.
this place and we feel your presence move through us. Show us, Lord, remind us those times that you have been faithful. Remind us those times that you have been by our side. Remind us those times that you have filled us with love when we felt that we could not be loved. And remind us when we're in the middle of the storm that you are always there and you will show your glory in the middle of it all. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Let us go before the Lord tonight with a repentant heart. In this moment, we just want to remember it's just you and Him. It's no one else. No matter how you sing, no matter how you worship, no matter how you feel, no matter the guilt that you've come in this place with, no matter the joy you've come in, I want you to celebrate.
right there, right in his presence. Crawl up into his lap. Tell him everything you're going through. Tell him everything you've been up against. Tell him everything that you feel broken about. The song just before this one we sang, that burning heart, that burning heart, that heart that's ablaze is that holy ground where God enters Oh, Heavenly Father, that we might burn for the presence of God, burn for the holiness of God, burn for the Holy Spirit to live within us and guide us, burn for more and more of you, burn for a hunger and thirst for your word, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a hunger and thirst to be in the body of believers, to be in the family of God. To have a burden, Father God, to just get to know you more and more. To spend time with you, God. Father God, your word says that you have not given us a spirit of fear of timidity, but one of power, love, and self-discipline. Father God, I pray that we exercise power, love, and self-discipline. That the power of God would give us victory. The victory that you say, Lord God, that... Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor 
fears of today nor worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Father God, let us understand this. Let us understand the authority in which you have given us to live above sin. The Father God, if we fall, we get right back up. We don't wallow in our pain. We don't wallow in our shame. We don't wallow in our sin. But we say, Father, forgive us for we have sinned. And to get back up. Your word says if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, in Jesus' name, we need a cleansing, Lord. We need a cleansing to fall over us. We need a cleansing to fall within us. We need a cleansing to empower us. Father God, whatever might be separating us from you, whether it be an attitude that we keep wrestling with and tearing us apart, whether it be wrong motives, Lord, that we're living with motives that are trying to bring attention and glory to us instead of to you. Father God, our conduct might be such that, Lord, we are not pleasing to you. Father God, I pray that, Lord, you help us and give us the power to be transformed completely so that we can forget the things that lie behind us and we can move forward to the goal set before us. Oh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for our country. We pray, Father God, for a move of God. We pray for a revival, God. We pray, Father God, for a spiritual awakening, a spiritual rebirth, Father God. I pray that, Lord, you just bring fire into our life. Bring fire into New Mexico, God. We need fire. We need fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit to bring purity to this state. Father God, bring purity, Father God, to this congregation. God, we would just want to be more and more like you. Not make it about us. Not live in the the unholy attitudes that sometimes we carry. The unholy thoughts. But to be a righteous people. Father God, the Ukraine has been invaded, Lord. And Father, some are saying this could be the beginning of the end. Lord, we have put our trust and our hope in you. Father God, we don't put our trust in the news media. We don't put our trust, Father God, in anyone or anything but you. God, we pray that, Lord, you intervene. You be the peacemaker in that situation. Father God, be with our troops, Lord. We have troops all over the world to protect them. They carry the American flag, and they're an enemy just because of that. Father God, we pray for their families. Father God, do a work here tonight. A supernatural work. Thank you for what you're already doing just in the worship. Lord, there's a whole lot more you want to do tonight. So we, Lord God, say this in the right heart, but we give you permission to enter into our lives. We're not going to fight you. We're not going to wrestle with you. We're not going to rebuke your spirit that's trying to change our life. So we're going to say, have your will, have your way in our life tonight. We pray anointing, Father God. Reverend Griego, Lord, your power would flow through him. God, we thank you. We pray in the glorious, glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's people shout out, amen. Amen. Give him praise. Give him praise and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. 
Thank you, Father, for what you're doing. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are going to be blessed tonight. You're going to be blessed tonight. Say, and I pray blessing over you right now. And then you may be seated. Get your Bible out. Get your notebook out. Get ready to take in the Word of God. It's going to be good stuff. You already know how we give around here. Somebody said, man, you guys don't pass a basket around here. You know why? Because God's people give so much, we have boxes that you have to drop it in. Boxes at every doorway. Or you could give text to give, or you could give online, or you could give with our app. And uh, I tell you, God's doing a work. Thank you for your faithfulness. We're able to do some really wonderful things. Hey, I want to remind you that this Friday night, we're resurrecting, resurrecting a ministry that had stopped for a while during the pandemic, and it's called Joy, J-O-Y, Just Older Youth. It's for 55-year-olds and older. We don't call it a senior citizen group because when you start getting as old as I am, you just think you're a little bit older than the youth. We're still youthful. So if you're 55 or older, I hope you show up. It's a potluck, so bring some kind of dish with you. And uh, I hope you come and join us. This Sunday is Baptism Sunday. Hallelujah! So if you've given your life to Jesus, but you've never been baptized since you gave your life to Jesus, it's real important that you do that. It's, it's an outward demonstration of what took place in your heart. See, we were, a lot of us were baptized as a baby. I know I was. And they told me all about it. I, I don't remember a thing. Yet the Bible says, to those that believe and are baptized, they shall be saved. So you've got to be able to know what you're doing. You've got to be able to understand what you're doing. So if you already gave your life to Jesus and you've never been baptized, it's real important that you do that. So get here at the 11 o'clock service. Bring a complete change of clothes because you will go underwater and you get completely wet. Ladies, uh, if you come, make sure you wear a dark T-shirt and some kind of jeans or joggers or, I mean, some kind of shorts or whatever. And uh, don't forget to bring your towels with you. We do have extra towels if you need them. Also, I want to remind you ladies that we are kicking off a brand new ministry for all you ladies because we have men's group, we have this, we have that. They're kicking off a new ministry called Sisterhood. Sisterhood. And they're going to be doing all kinds of stuff, from Bible studies to seminars to outings, to just go have a lot of fun, just a lot of neat things, and they're kicking it off. So mark it in your calendar, March the fourth, the fifth, March the fifth. It's at ten a.m. Saturday, March the fifth. So please mark that on your calendars and invite one of your friends with you. Uh, it's sisterhood, so invite a sister and say, "Sister, come on, let's get together." And we are going to have childcare provided, so that way you could bring your kids and. But if your husband could take care of the kid, it'd probably be better. That way they could do some fun stuff. Well, you come over here and have fun stuff. I just want to let you know, Grief Share is starting up, um, and it's a class for people that have lost loved ones. We've done a lot of funerals here. 
Last year, we did 92 funerals here. And this year, we've done at least two funerals a week. It's just devastating. So pray, 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 pray that God would bring healing to people, and you could find that in the Grief Share class. Guys, we're doing a Bible study, a, a, a sermon series on Wednesday night called In the Beginning Was the Word. And we're trying to present you the meaning of the word, the power of the word, the authenticity of the word of God. How you could believe it. How you could know it in your knower that it is God's word. And I'll tell you, no greater professor than Reverend Anthony Griego, who's been breaking the word of God open for us and speaking into our lives. He's going to be here one more time tonight. Brother Grego, would you please come up and just break open the word. Give it up for Anthony, would you? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Good evening. Why don't we pray? Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. Every word, every thought, Lord, as we as we purpose, Lord, to, to become equipped, Father, that as we pick up your word, it would be real to us, Father, that we would be able to understand the intent of the author, the intent, your intent, Father, that it would do the work that you wanted to do in our lives. We thank you, Father, for this gathering together for everyone here, and Lord, even for those who are at home watching. God, that you would be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we've talked about the fact that the Word of God is important. We did that on the first Wednesday. And then last Wednesday we talked about why the Word of God is believable. And, and you can take those arguments and, and you can take them to any college if you want to, and nobody can argue with you. There are more manuscripts of the Scriptures by far than any other ancient document. And so even though all of them don't perfectly agree and we understand why they don't, that's not a problem to us, right? We understand that this is, this is as close as we will ever get to the original autographs that, that the apostles had written. So if you are convinced <clears throat> that the Word of God is important and you're convinced that it's worth studying, how do you study it? You know, for I would guess maybe 90% of Christians, at least in America, I don't know if this would, would be true everywhere, but for most people, they will go through their Christian life basically skimming the surface of what the Scriptures have to present to them. And it's really sad. It's really sad because they never really get to the point where they can feed themselves from, from, from the depth of the Word. One of my professors would say that the Word of God is amazing because it can take it and you can explain it to a child. And, and it's like a child walking along the shore of, the, of, of an ocean Right on the shore, there's no, no threat to that child. They get their feet wet, and they enjoy it. And yet the Word of God can be like, you know, 20 yards out where the, the best swimmer cannot touch the bottom of the ocean. It can go that deep. And it's not like you have to be, you know, graduate of any particular school or any particular degree, but it requires is understanding how to do this. Shortly after I became a Christian, the fellow who led me to the Lord 
he invited me to go to a Bible study. And I said, sure, we'll do that. And he says, Saturday morning. And I'm thinking, Saturday morning? We don't do Bible on Saturday. I don't even do Bible. What are you talking about Saturday morning? And he says, yeah, we're going to meet at 9 o'clock at, at, at this person's house. And, and it's like, I didn't have a clue. I, you know, I sat there probably bored out of my skull, right? Thinking, what am I doing here? I ought to be out there playing baseball or, or you know, I, I think my lawn, our lawn needs mowing. Yeah, yeah, I, I better go mow the lawn, right, you know? I got to do something. But he said, no, you need to be here. You need to be here because I want to show you how to study the Scripture. And that man did so much for me. And I, I praise God to this day. So at any rate, at this point, um, tonight we're going to look at how to effectively study the Word of God. Because I don't want you to be skimmers. I want you to be deep divers, okay? And I want you to be able to take what you learned tonight and, 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 and take it with you, not only to feed yourself, but to be able to use, be used of God to, to, to help and to minister wherever you go. When, when I first contemplated even going to seminary, it was like, you know, the only seminary I grew up ever thinking of going to was Catholic, because that's what I was raised, right? And it's not, it's not like, you know, it would have been terrible, but I wasn't even a believer. But when, when I was praying about that, one of the fellows that I was living with, brother in the Lord, he says, you know what? It doesn't really matter what God's going to lead you to. You have an opportunity to study the Word of God and, 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 and to let it get inside of you probably more than most people ever will. And based on that alone, I said, you know what? How can I lose, right? So what I'm going to show you tonight, and, and if you have the notes, follow along with me because it's not complicated. It really isn't. But it takes time and it takes practice. So let's look at our goal, first of all. If you're looking at your notes, there are six things on an overview that I want you to consider. And the first one is this. What is our goal? 2 Timothy 2.15 I don't know if we can get that up there. There it is. Okay. Can I get it on this screen also? Or is that possible? So 2 Timothy 2.15, in in my version, I I, I memorized in the uh, Revised Standard at that point, it says, be diligent to present yourselves as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. That's, that's the goal. That's my goal for myself, for you, for everybody that I come in contact with who claims to be a believer because I don't want them to be stifled in their growth. I want them to be able to know how to study the word of God for themselves. So that's the first thing. That's our goal is to be Diligent to present ourselves as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. The second thing that we need to consider is that we always have to go to God and pray. Second Peter, uh, chapter, um, Second Peter, chapter one, verse twenty. I don't see that up there. Let me get. It's still not showing up on this screen, so I'll have to quote it from my Bible if, if you can't get it there. Can you get it? No? Okay. Okay, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, um, verse 20. 
says this, and, and again, this is from, from a different version maybe than what you're using. This is the New American Standard. It says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And so the point that I make out of this, in fact, what, what I'm presenting to you is basically what my wife and I teach in a class here on Sunday mornings. Um, the class is basically how to study your, how, how to study your Bible. And we take any book of the Bible, we've taken everything from Habakkuk to Isaiah, right now we're in the book of Colossians, and we will take that book and we will go through it, maybe not every chapter, but what chapters we go through, we go through it line by line, and we show you how to study it so that you can pick up anywhere in the Bible and you can go and feed yourself. So here it is, 2 Peter 1.20, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or in the NLT, in the margin, it would say, or a matter of one's understanding. When we come to interpretation, you'll see what I mean by that. Basically, the fact is is that we're not the ones who make up what the author intended. Our goal is to understand what the author intended in his word, right? Okay, so that's um, number two. Number three is I want you to to learn two uh, two new phrases tonight. One is I want you to recognize what a propositional statement is. And so all that means is if I tell you, if I, if I tell you a statement as though it's true, that I'm making a proposition. So if I tell you that it is, like in this case here, a propositional statement is a sentence or an expression in which a person gives you their opinion about the world or about anything. So if I told you it is snowing, buckets outside, and, you know, we're going to all have to stay here tonight. That's my proposition. Your question in your mind, if you become a critical thinker, is you have to say, is that true? Because you know what happens is that we get so accustomed to hearing propositional statements throughout the day, everywhere, from everybody, that sometimes we're not careful enough, first of all, to recognize them, or secondly enough, to challenge them. And so, so what you have to do is when you listen to a propositional statement, you have to stop in your mind at least and say, I wonder if that's true. And then you have to, if, if, if it has anything to do with spiritual aspect, you have to take it back to the Word of God and say, is it true according to the Word of God? Um, I've got a slide I was going to show you of a propositional statement from, um, um, I don't know if it's up there, the Ayatollah somebody. Here he is. An Iranian cleric says that if you take the COVID-19 vaccine, it will turn you gay. You know, and he's got 200,000 followers, probably more now. That is a propositional statement. But we will hear them and we will speak them all the time. If you ever listen to a commercial, what are they telling you? They're making propositional statements. They're making claims that maybe eventually are proven true or not, right? So when you hear a propositional statement, you want to train yourself, first of all, to to catch it and say, ah, there's a propositional statement, and then say, I wonder if that's true. Because what you need to do is you need to be a critical thinker now and not buy everything that you hear, right? How is it that we as, as as a society have come to believe that somebody who happens to be able to sing or play an instrument or 
shoot a basketball or, or you know, act, okay? That somehow these people are in, endowed with, with special insight to tell us what is real in this world. You get these celebrities that will stand there and they think that they, they have this following, and they do, do they not, right? Hundreds and thousands of people will get onto their website because they're going to spout out whatever they think, propositional statements, right? And why do we even think that these people are any smarter than we are? Just because they can sing. Just because they can play a role in, in a movie or something that we happen to like. That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? And yet that's where we are as a culture. We do not question propositional statements because we are not critical thinkers. And I want you all to become critical thinkers, not critical people. We know what critical people are, right? We don't want that. We want critical thinkers, people who weigh what they hear before they say yes. That's what we need to become if we're going to become good students of the Word of God. Because the Word of God is not going to go the way of so many things that you already hear and maybe many of the things that you already believe. It is going to go counter to those things. In, in um, Acts 17, verse 11, it says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. So Paul and Silas were going from city to city, sharing the gospel, leading people to the Lord, and many people would gather. And in this one particular city of Berea, this town, at the end of the day after they would listen to Paul, they went home or they went back to the synagogue because most of them didn't have a copy of the scriptures themselves. But they gathered together around a copy of the scriptures and they said, we're going to check this Paul out, man. You know, he's an eloquent speaker. He's got degrees. He's got this. He's, you know, but is he telling us the truth? You see, they were, in this particular version, it says they were more open-minded. The other uh, version will say they were more noble. And what that means is that they were more clear-thinking. They were, they were people who were critical thinkers, right? They weren't going to accept, even from the Apostle Paul, whatever he said, they were going to go back and check it against what? The Word of God. And that's what we need to do. We need to be able to take everything that we hear back to the Word of God. And this includes here at the church, right? I tell the class that my wife and I teach, if, if I ever stand in front of you and tell you that I understand everything in this Bible, you better get up and leave that room quickly, okay? You got that? You leave now because that's not going to happen. Not in my lifetime, I'll tell you. But the thing is, is you have to be willing to, to critically appraise everything that you hear and even more so everything that you think. Because we already have a lot of thoughts that are messed up, do we not? Pastor's message this, this last Sunday, you know, we live according to what we think. And if our living isn't right, guess what? You back it up and, and what does that tell you? Your thinking isn't right, correct? And so the only place you're going to get the correct thinking is again in the Word of God. Okay, so number four on things on the overview is you have to understand the translation process, okay? We live in different times than when the Scriptures were written. For the New Testament, we're looking 2,000 years. For the Old Testament, we're looking 3,500, 
okay, or more. And so the way that they would communicate something back in that time or the culture in which they communicated it is way different than our culture today. And you have to appreciate that. So not only are we living in different times, but we're living in different cultures. So if you'll, uh, if you have that, can you show the next slide? My wife and I, we walk a lot. And you see these little libraries, um, stands in the neighborhood? I come across this book. It's a cookbook for people who love animals. Now, what does that mean? Hmm. You know, I'm thinking, uh, in some cultures, that means, hey, I love roasted poodle, you know. Mm, wonderful, right? In fact, I Googled this, and there's at least six major countries that pets, what we consider pets, are part of the diet every day. Look at China. You can go and, and Google it. They'll show you, you know, this is poodle, this is butch, you know, this is, or, you know, whatever they named them. But see, if you look at this book and you're not sure what culture you're in, you're not sure what this book is talking to you. If you go to the next slide, this is one of the chapters in the book. <laughs> now, don't you all just want a recipe how to prepare that dog or cat, right? Without context, what do you do with this? And not until you realize at uh, the next slide, not until you realize that it's a cookbook, it says what, uh, totally vegetarian recipes. This is a cookbook for you, the pet lover, to make vegetarian snacks for your dog or cat. But would you have guessed that? No, because see, different cultures, you have to understand the culture in which the language is given, and then when you bring it into a different language, a different culture, guess what? You've got to bring in the thought, right? And so you have to be very careful because not only are you trying to bring the thought, but you have to bring it in word by word. Now, if I tell you that I really love my wife, you would think, well, okay, that's cool. But if I tell you I really love pizza, do I mean the same thing? You would, my wife would hope not, okay? Otherwise, I'm walking home tonight. The point being is that every word, and if you need to think about this, every word that we use in any language has a range of meaning. Every word does. And so if we talk about the word love, it could mean everything from pizza to my wife. It could mean, you, you, you can imagine all the things, right? A guy tells a girl he loves her. It can mean lots of things, maybe things that it shouldn't mean. True? And so you need to understand that in the process of translating from either Hebrew or Greek, the translators have to take the words from one language and figure out what is the most appropriate word in the language it's going to. Now, us being here in the U.S., we're always thinking English, of course, but that's not the first translations made. The first translations were some were German, some were Spanish, some were other languages, right? But in every case, what they had to do is they had to take the Greek word and say, okay, what Spanish word is best one for love? Amor? But maybe there's other words, right? Because in the Greek, there's actually four different words for love. 
There's agape, which is the love that we have for God. There's phileo, which is a love that I have for a brother. There's eros, which is erotic love or physical love. And there's a fourth one I don't remember it is offhand. But the point being, if every time you translate any of those different words in the Greek to love, don't you kind of lose some of the idea? You see the point? And so what you do is you have to understand in the process of doing translations, not only do you have to consider the time gap from when the the, the original was written and the cultural gap, but also the fact that every word has a range of meaning. When we translate from Greek into English in, in a class that I teach, some of the translations come out really, really weird, okay? And I'll ask the student, I'll say, now why did you pick that English word for this Greek word? And they'll say, well, because that's the way I memorized it. And I say, well, let's go to the dictionary and see what other words are, are offered to you as an alternative. And then at that point, maybe the, the text becomes clearer, right? So that's number four. You have to understand the translation process. Number five, you have to understand the different versions of the Bible. You probably can't read this, but but I can... I can um, I guess if you bring it up later, or or maybe sometimes I'll make a copy of it. This is a scale of, 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 what, about 20 different English translations that are available today. Some of them start in what they call the very literal, where they go word for word. If there was a Greek word, there's an English word. If there's another Greek word, there's an English word. And it goes from that point where it goes word from word to thought to thought to where they don't, they're, they're not... In the middle of the scale, they're not translating word for word. They're saying, okay, let's translate this sentence and let's think about what it's trying to say and then let's write your version, what we think it says. And then at the far end is the paraphrase. And if any of you have ever used the Living Bible, that was my first Bible for the first four or five years of my Christian life because I could understand it. And and what that Bible, how that Bible came about there was a a gentleman who loved the Lord, was trying to teach the word of God to his children. And he would try to read them the Bible, and they they zoned out. They, They didn't understand any of that. So he would take his Bible, and he would read a chapter, and then he would write in his own words what he thought that was conveying. And that's what the, the living Bible is. That's why it's called a paraphrase. He phrases it in his own thinking according to what he reads but it has nothing to do with word-for-word translation. It's trying to do that. It's trying to communicate the idea, but it's, it's at the end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is word-for-word, and a word-for-word is sometimes harder to read because it's not always simple English, okay? But that's the point, is that you, you, you pick a translation that you can understand, and once you get into a Bible study, it's good to look at different translations, in fact, if any of you have ever used what, what's called the Blue Letter Bible online, anybody do that? I want you to Google that. That is incredible. You type in any, any phrase that you think is found in the Bible, it'll, it'll take you and show you where it's at. If you type in the verse, it'll, it'll show, take you to that passage. And then staying on that verse, you can flip through all the different translations. It gives you all 20 of them or so. And you can see how they translate them. Because see, again, the different translators didn't always pick the same English word for the same Greek word. You see what I'm saying? And so sometimes you'll get a different idea 
as to, well, what else could this verse mean? And you'll compare one version to the other. So that's, that's understanding the different versions, okay? Um, the last thing of our overview is to acknowledge that there are some Bible verses that are difficult to understand, and they will be. One of, one of my professors, in fact, my Greek professor who did Greek and Hebrew, this guy, I, I think he probably dreamt in Greek. Forty years, that's, that's, that was his career, 40 years. But he would tell us as a class, he would say, you know what, when I first went to Bible college, I had all these questions, and I was convinced I was going to get answers for all these questions from the Bible. He says, after 40 years, you know what? I've got some of those questions answered, but I've got another wheelbarrow full of questions, you know? There's always going to be something else that comes up. And sometimes, you know, it's like, I don't know. You're going to ask me a question. I'm going to say, I'm going to have to look at that again because I'm not really sure. And the reason I bring this up is because I want you to become comfortable with the fact that you don't have to know everything. I don't know everything. I never will, okay? But I want you to become comfortable in the sense, too, that I can pursue as much as I can. And I don't need to have a degree. I don't need to know Greek. I don't need to know Hebrew. I don't need to know. I need to know how to study what I have in front of me, okay? So let's go to the process now. It is not complicated. Four steps, okay? This is not, this is not a tr- typical sermon. And, and, and you know, most of my, my time that I'm talking, um, I'm lecturing. So, so bear with me in this. The first step is the context of the passage in which you are studying. You ask yourself the question, what type of writing am I looking at? If I open up the scripture... And, uh, in fact, I had one here. I didn't put it in the... Ah, I lost it. I was going to share it with you. From Song of Solomon. Here it is. You have to understand what type of passage you're looking at. So the first thing you have to do is determine... The, the term is genre. I think it's a French word. You don't need to know that if you don't. All it means is you have to understand what type of writing it is. Is it a personal letter? The book of Philemon? I used to call it Philemon because I thought, all right, Philemon, he's one of us, right? That is a personal letter. Paul is writing it to a person, right? It's a letter. And, and other books are history. The book of Acts is a history book. And so when you go to the book of Acts and you read about, about something happening like to Paul. He gets bit by a snake, on, and, and, and they, they're sure he's going to die. He doesn't die, right? It's recording what happened. It doesn't mean that we ought to go out and let ourselves be bit by snakes, hey, because it's in the Bible, right? It's history. It's not doctrine. It is a historical account. You can read that in, in, in Acts chapter 1. You have to look at the book if it's doctrine, The book of Romans is doctrine. It is trying to tell you this is what you need to believe. This is is true according to God. That is doctrine. If you look at narrative, it's telling you a story. It's telling you what happened, and this would be like the Gospels, right? It's almost like you're watching a movie, and then Jesus immediately does this and does this and does this, and it's almost like you're watching a movie. It's telling you the story. 
Or if it's parables, what is a parable? A parable tells you that if you live in a certain manner, God will generally bless. In fact, it'll say, God will bless you. The problem with a parable, though, is that some people take those as promises. Because there are some people today, today, who love the Lord, who are faithful to the Lord, who lost their life today because of the Lord. It doesn't mean that God isn't faithful, but a parable is what happens generally. It's not the rule of what happens to everybody. You, you see my point? So you need to read, when you read a parable, you have to remember that this isn't a promise. This is what generally happens. If you live to honor God, God is going to bless you. But it doesn't mean that, that you know, God is going to bless you in the way that you want to be blessed, right? That's up to him. So if it's a parable, remember it isn't the promise. You, if it's poetry, remember that it's poetry. This is, a, this is a passage from Song of Solomon. I don't have it up there. <clears throat> it says here, Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come down from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. The temples of your head are like a slice of pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Now see, if, if, if I told my wife that without any context, without you understanding where I'm coming from, she rightly is going to slap me and say, who, what have you been drinking, you know, right? You have to understand what book you're looking at, and, and that's the genre. You have to understand where you're getting you know, what you're studying, right? If it's poetry, then it's poetry. If it's a proverb, then it's a proverb. If it's history, then it's history. If it's doctrine, then it's doctrine. But you have to make sure you have that clear in your mind as you're studying that passage. If it's prophecy, then it's prophecy, revelation, right? Even, even a lot of the major prophets, Isaiah, Daniel. In fact, if you ever study the book of Revelation, you have to begin with the book of Daniel, they go together. <clears throat> so the context is king. You have to understand the context of the passage that you're studying. You have heard the saying that you can prove anything from the Bible, right? Especially from non-believers. You know, if you're sharing the gospel, ah, you can prove anything from, from the Bible. And that's true. That is true. If you take a passage out of context, you can twist it to mean anything. And we know that, right? We know that. And so that's why the context is critical. It is so critical that you understand where this verse is coming from. And that's why you read the, 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 the chapter. You have to look around and ask yourself, who wrote it? And when was it written? And, and what came before the passage? And what follows after the passage? And what was the situation in which the passage was written? If you ever pick up the, the, the Old Testament and say, like, jump to Isaiah, or even, even, even to the Kings or Chronicles, right? You start reading through there, unless you back up a certain point, you don't even know who the good guys are and the bad guys are, right? Because in some cases, God is sending the evil nation against the nation of Israel, and you're saying, uh, I don't get this. God, what's, what's with this, right? You need to be able to understand the context of where you're studying if you're going to make any sense of it. 
the passage, you have to determine if the passage is intended to teach, to challenge, to correct, to answer a question, or to deal with a problem. If you read Paul's letters to the book uh, to the, uh, Corinthians, that church had problems. I mean, serious problems, and that's why he is writing those letters. You can't mistake that if you if you read through it, and if you think Paul, you know, uh, was was milk toast and you know, kind of like just oh, you know, so you know, so so holy, kind of like we we think of people holy would be. Paul gets sarcastic with them. If you read the book of Galatians, he calls them out. He says, you fools, who has bewitched you? Who has, who has come in and told you a false doctrine about the gospel? He pulls no punches. But see, you, you need to understand what the situation is to make sense of the passage. So that's the context that you have to, you have to grasp, Okay. If you have a Bible handbook, in fact, you don't even need one these days. Everything is online. You can go to many Bible sources online. You know, and I would go to several of them. That way you can check them against each other because, again, why? I want you to be a critical thinker, right? You don't just buy the first one and say, well, that must be, that must be true, you know? No, no, you go back and look at other. In fact, I'll even go to, to non-Christian. I'll go to, to, to Encyclopedia Britannica on it online and say, okay, let me see what, what it tells me about Paul. So don't be afraid to research, okay? You got to do that if you're going to get the context. <clears throat> the second thing, second step, is you have to learn how to observe. Any of you have ever seen those children's books, um, like Where's Waldo? You know what I'm talking about? So it's got this picture, and it's jammed with all this clutter, and somewhere in there is this guy with a striped you know, red and white striped T-shirt, right? And the kids love that, you know, because you're looking, oh, I found Waldo. That's what you got to do with the Scripture. You have to learn how to look very, very carefully. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to read every word carefully. If God put the word there, then the word to me is important. Because if you drop out a word, it makes a big difference. One of the guys who was in the men's house years ago, he's still there, Jack Beck. He was in our class years ago. And one Sunday morning, I I stood in our class and I said, you know, money is the root of all evil. And he's he's there, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, money is the root of all evil. And we're looking at the verse. I mean, we had just read it. And I said, isn't that right, guys? Isn't that right? Money is the root of all evil. And, And I would hope some of you are shaking your head but you know what? A lot of people were like this. And I said, let's go back and read it again. And, and money's the root of all evil. Yeah, yeah. And, and I said, okay, let's go back and read it again. Read it word for word. And finally he says, you know what? It doesn't say that. I said, no, it doesn't. What does it say? It says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Does it make a difference? One word makes a difference. You know what is really blows my mind is is I was reading we're, we're studying Colossians and I went and referenced the New World Translation that's put out by the Jehovah's Witnesses right because I want to see what they do with certain verses that raise Christ up to being God 
and in, in chapter 1 of Colossians where it talks about Christ being the creator of all things, Paul repeats that like three times, maybe four. And you know what they do? They put in this little word five times other so that it reads, and Christ is the creator of all other things. Five times they put that in. And if somebody is reading that and they don't look at any other Bible, what are they going to think? Well, you know, God had to create God, uh, Christ, because he isn't God, and then Christ created everything after that. That's what they're saying. You see the point? That's what they're saying. But that little word that they add five times, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? So we look at every word carefully. Then you have to think about what's implied by the teaching. If Paul is talking to to uh, the, the Galatians and saying, don't, don't brag, don't argue with each other, don't try to one-up each other, what do you think is going on in that church? They're bragging, they're trying to one-up on each other, right? They're talking behind each other's back. If he's telling them, don't do this, guess what's going on there? They're probably doing it. You see my point? So you have to think about what's implied by what is said. Then you look for words that are repeated, in, a, in one chapter, you can pick any chapter of, of, of James or Paul or whoever, and if you read a paragraph, you will see that there's a theme in his mind as he's writing that paragraph. That's the way people write. They don't write one sentence and then jump, you know, way off to some other thought for another sentence and then way back to another thought for another sentence. They're writing logically, and so that's why we have to apply logic as we go through it and say, gosh, he's repeating freedom three times in 12 verses. I think that's probably what he's talking about, that we are free from the law of Moses. And he spells, out, spells it out there, but you have to look for words that are repeated in that passage you're looking at. Then you look for parenthetical phrases. Now, let me explain what that is. You know, when you put parentheses around a sentence... Paul is great for doing this. So if I said, uh, our brother Tomas, and then put open parentheses, the one whose life is exemplifies Christ, close parentheses, is our church's custodian. You could take out what I put in parentheses, and the sentence would still make sense. Tomas is our church custodian. You see what I'm saying? So you can remove it for the time being so that you can see the structure of, of what's being written. Because if you, if, you, if you went back actually to the Greek, the whole first chapter of the book of, uh, of Ephesians is one sentence, the whole first chapter. Because Paul, he gets so excited as he's writing, he mentions Jesus, and then he goes off, open parentheses, for the next four verses telling you everything that he's thinking about Jesus, close parentheses, then he comes back to his main point. And then he'll say something about God the Father, and then here he goes again, you know, open parentheses, and he's going to say all these things, close parentheses, and he comes back to the structure of what he's trying to say. So what you want to do is you want to start looking for that. And it's not that you're throwing away what's, what's in parentheses, but you're trying to understand the structure, the, the logical flow of what he's writing. Then you look at the little words like but and since therefore. 
if I come up to one of the brothers and say, man, you are, you are really amazing, but... Or if I come up to another sister and say, you are really amazing, and... Little words are important, right? When you see the word since or therefore, pay attention because the therefore is therefore for a reason, right? You got to go back and say, okay, why did he put therefore? And Paul quite often will say, this is what God has done for you. Therefore, this is what it, it ought to mean to you. This is what it ought, how it ought to impact your life. So the therefore, the since, because, and, but, all those words, you think ah, they're just small words. They are important, right? All of them are. And then finally, you, you start asking questions. Who and what and where and when and how? You start looking at the passage and ask yourself, you know, why? Well, not the why yet. The why comes in interpretation. But you ask yourself, where did this occur? How is Paul dealing with the situation, a problem in the Corinth church? But you become the Sherlock Holmes, if you will, of that passage. You're looking for every clue that you can find. Because the one thing that made Sherlock Holmes, if you've ever seen any, any presentations of his, you know, in movies or whatever, is that he shows up at the crime scene and, you know, there's normally one of the, the Scotland Yard officers there ready to arrest whoever he he can grab at the moment, right? And Sherlock Holmes just walks around quietly and he's looking at every detail, every detail before he even says anything. But that's what you have to do. You have to become the detective on the passage that you're trying to study because you're going to have to be able to take what you see and then, and then make sure that that's what, what, it's, what it's saying. So you're the detective Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples here as to how this works. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, and it should be up here. So it says, Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. One verse. My question is this. What is a spiritually mature believer able to do? He's able to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now, see, for for a lot of us, we already know basically what's right and wrong. We already do. But you know, as you begin walking with the Lord, some some of the questions become harder, don't they? Some of the ethical questions come up and you're thinking, wow, should I, should I tell that, that person that this is going on or, or, or not? Or, you know, I'm sure pastor probably faces a lot of those situations where cases come, they're not cut and dry. And so what he does, and, and what I pray you're going to do, is you're going to be going through your mind thinking, okay, uh, let me think of a scriptural principle that I can give you that would give you clarity to your question. But so here, you can see, I ask the question, what is, what is a spiritually mature believer able to do? He's able to recognize the difference between right and wrong. The second question, what effect or what effort does it take to become spiritually mature? What do you see? Training. Pretty direct, isn't it? Next question. 
is, what is the diet of a spiritually mature person, of the spiritually mature? Solid food. Right? Any, any arguments? Pretty clear, huh? One more question. I think there's one more, isn't there? No, I guess not. The point that I'm getting at, if you look at this one verse, if you were wanting to teach that verse, you've got three points right there. You don't have to go look in any place else. You understand what that passage is. You look at that verse and look at what it's telling you. And, and, and if you are careful in your reading after today or tonight, you will go back to verses that you've read before. And if you look carefully, things are going to pop out at you that you're going to say, you know, I've never seen that before. I, I didn't know that was there. Look at this one, 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think this is out of the New American Standard. But let me ask a couple of questions here. Who is this addressing? Whoever. That means you. That means me. That means whoever, right? Okay. That's the first point. What are these persons supposed to teach? You, whoever, what are you supposed to teach? The utterances of God. We're not here to teach our own philosophy. In, in one of my sermon prep classes when I was in seminary, all of us were, I mean, as green as could be, right? We didn't know what we were doing. And this one poor brother get, gets up before me, and, and you could tell, man, the pulpit is going like this, right? And, and, and there's, you know, it's the classroom, but they invite the wives to come and sit in so that the wives can help us kind of, you know, gent, break it gently to us. Boy, that stunk, you know? You really got to work at that. The point being is that this fellow, he is there waxing hard, you know, and I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe this, and finally the professor gets up and he says, you know what, son, we don't really care what you believe. We're here to hear what the Word of God says. And that's what we're here for, right? We want to know what the utterances of God are. So that's what... what Whoever is supposed to teach the utterances of God. My next question is this. How should these persons accomplish this, the whoever, and by the strength which God supplies? God isn't asking us to to pull this out of our boots. He says, I've got the power for you to do what I'm calling you to do. I'm giving you the words that I want you to give, and this is you, whoever, that I'm talking to. This is all of us, right? And then finally, what should be the ultimate goal of this person, us, whoever? And the answer is that God would be glorified. That's why we're doing what we do. That's why we're here, right? And so we go through these two, two verses, right? This one in, in 1 Peter 4.11, the other in Hebrews 5.14. Uh, You can see if you just stop long enough and read it carefully and ask yourselves, what is this saying? Who is it talking to? What does does the author want me to understand? 
What does he want me to do? How does he want me to think? The word will open up to you. And one thing you can do is, is when you sit down, whether it's in the morning or in the evening or whenever you have your quiet time, read a passage. You don't have to read a whole chapter. You can't do this, you know, in 10 minutes. Read two, three verses, maybe six, and just say, God, help me to understand what you have for me out of these six verses. I don't have to prove anybody that I'm going to get through the Bible in a year. It doesn't matter if you don't understand it, right? you got to get it into you. They say that, you know, and maybe I've made this comment before, if, if you take certain vitamins without something in your stomach, they pass right through, right? There's no positive effect. You've got to allow the word to sit there, and you need to take time to think about it word for word. And so, finally, we come to application, okay? What does it mean? I'm not sure where we're at time. The clock isn't running. Okay. We'll wrap up here. And if, if we don't finish today, then we'll pick it up next week. Interpretation. So the first step is context. The second one is observation. If you develop your observational skills, interpretation will be easy. It will be easy. If you've ever been in a Bible study where people start arguing, well, I think it means this and I think this, the problem in that study is that they haven't all learned to observe carefully. Because if everybody observes, it's rare. It's, it is really, really rare you'll get disagreement when you come to interpretation. It's really neat. You'll, you'll have to try it. So interpretation, the question is, what does it mean? Does my understanding of this passage reflect the primary intent of the author? I have to be able to go back and tell you, this is why I believe the, the author is saying what, you, what I understand, because I can show you from this verse and this verse and this verse. I have to be able to prove it to myself and to whoever I'm trying to teach. Does it fit the immediate context of the passage? We can pull verses from everywhere and, and use them as what they call proof texts, but that may not be at all what they were intended for. You have to look at the verse in context and say, this is what the author meant because I can see it in his paragraph. And then you have to make sure that your interpretation agrees with the Bible's teaching in other passages. If you come up with something that is new, it's probably not correct. If you come up with something, you know, that's off base, if you will honestly look at other verses, you're going to have to answer those verses and say, okay, how does this fit with these other verses? Quite often what you'll find and, and see, cults do this all the time. They will pull certain verses in order to make their point, but then you'll say, well, how about this other verse? I had a cousin who had been devout, devout Catholic, and then we were at a picnic some years ago, and he tells me that he's studying with Jehovah's Witnesses on Saturday mornings. And I'm thinking, oh, Gus, what are you doing? And so I said, do you mind if I come and sit in? He says, sure, come. So we're sitting in his kitchen table, and, and these two guys show up on time on Saturday morning, and they sit there, and they go through a study with him that Saturday. And I sat there just quiet. I did not say a word, you know. And I come back the next Saturday, and these two guys, right on time, they're there, they're sitting there, and they're telling him, 
you know, this is the verse you need to believe. You know, and this is this and this is this. And I say, uh, can I ask you a question about this other verse over here? In five minutes, they got up and left. They left. They never came back. Because you see, their interpretation is based on what they want to pick. And then oftentimes they'll pull it out of context anyway, and oftentimes we'll twist it to make it sound like what they want it to be, you know, what they want it to be. So they don't believe that there's a hell. Do you think hell's mentioned in the Bible? You gotta ask yourself, okay, what do you do with those verses, right? You know, you just cut them out or what, you know? You gotta answer the tough ones too, if you're gonna make a point. So when you come to your interpretation, you have to make sure that it, it, it doesn't conflict with other doctrines of the scripture. And some of them are hard. Some people will say they're contradictions. I don't believe so. I don't believe because I believe that the word of God is infallible. But it does mean that you've got to study them. And sometimes I don't still quite understand them all. And I'm okay with that. All right? I, I, I purpose to take what I do very seriously. I, I try hard not to take myself too seriously. Because I know I know who I am. And I'm not God's answer to this world, okay? But if God can use me to help you learn how to use your scripture and, and feed yourself, then then my my then then God be be praised, okay? Let me read you one more verse before we go on. Um, Romans chapter ten. This is Paul. <clears throat> he says, and, and this is out of my, my version, because I didn't plan to put it up here. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's talking about his Jewish brethren, right? I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. We all have family. We all have friends. We all know somebody who isn't against God. And they'll tell you, I pray, and, and, and I believe in a God, and I even believe in Jesus, and I even believe that he died on the cross. But they don't connect the fact that he, he died on the cross because they couldn't save themselves. And for years, I went to a church that, that believed that Christ died, that he was God that he'd paid for my sins. But unfortunately, I was told incorrectly that I had to add something to his death to make it to heaven. And that's not true. That is a lie. When Christ said, it is finished on the cross, it means it's finished. There's nothing else we have to do, nothing else we can do to pay for our sins. They are done. In Colossians, Paul says, he has taken our debt, our certificate of debt, and nailed it to the cross. And it's not on our account anymore. This is the the relationship we talked the first night, remember? As to why the, the Bible is important. It is key that you and I understand without any doubt that the relationship we have with God at this point, if we are in Christ, it is not based on what we do. 
It is based on what he did. When we are down, even as pastor will say, you know, we, we fall. Yes, we do. But we're his, and he gets us up. There's still a lot more word that Anthony's going to share. And we'll be covering a review of tonight and then finish up tonight's study. I know we've gone longer than normal, and I know some of you have deadlines. Um, but don't leave without understanding what he just finished saying. Because this is about really being able to study, and, and we're looking at context, we're looking at observation. Everything he just said right now, it is finished. This is all about our relationship. There's a lot of people that know a lot about the Bible, but they don't know the author. They don't know Jesus. They don't know God. And I just want to make sure before we leave here tonight that you have an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, I pray that you really make a decision to really come to understand that. What it means to receive Christ. To let him become the Lord of your life. He's Savior and then he's Lord. He saves you from the very flames of hell. He gives you life eternal. But then Lord means he's your king. He directs your life. And if you've never made that decision and you want to make it tonight, just raise your hand. Is there anyone here tonight that would like to do that? Well, then, would you stand with me as we close in prayer? And we'll be, we'll be really covering so much more next week. I really hope you come back. And, Anthony, you talked about some handouts. Did, did you guys get handouts tonight? Yes, okay. Good. I'm glad you got them because I know I didn't. And I was like, man, I want a handout. Father, thank you. Thank you for this amazing time to just understand how to understand, how to really seek you in the Scripture and understand what you're trying to say to us. Father, I pray that you minister to us, that you speak deeply into our heart, and that, Father God, we not skim the word, but we dig deep. We go deep into the deep waters. <clears throat> and, Lord, we grow through it. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this time with you. Thank you for Brother Anthony, Lord God, opening up his heart to us so that we could understand. Father God, I pray blessing over him and his family. And I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget Sunday's baptism. God bless you guys. You're dismissed.